many people are touched by the scene of Jesus nailed to a cross, having been beaten, and a crown of thorns on his head. In fact, when Mel Gibson, in his movie, uh, depicted uh, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, it was received a lot of response from the audiences that viewed it, as I had no idea that it was that gruesome, that gory. In fact, Hollywood said he went over the top with trying to depict how in the world could someone live through that experience. What I'm about to present to you is to make you back up from being attracted only to just how violent it was or how gruesome that it may have been and how it would take a superhuman to endure that and tell you that in factuality Jesus got a pass in many ways. When people were crucified in those days, they hung on the cross for weeks. They uh, often had the experience of crows eating them while they hung on the cross. They were hung outside of the city so that people would pass by. It was Rome's way of saying to these conquered people, look, when you come against the massiveness of Roman domination and power, we'll make an example of you. It was their way of thumbing their nose at their conquered people. But Jesus was on the cross not for weeks, not for days, but for hours. That's not to diminish the idea that his death on the cross was painful or gruesome. But I just want you to know there have been people died more horrible deaths than what Jesus died on the cross. Well, David, I, I don't know that I, I want to appreciate that. Well, I don't want you either to get lost in the idea that what he suffered saved you. You know, when you, you go to a Roman Catholic church, there's a picture or usually a, what's called a crucifix and you see Jesus hanging on the cross. And Baptists are a little bit disturbed by it and says, he's no longer on the cross. But I, I need to tell you also this, don't get caught up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and thinking that that's what saves you. No, that's just the tool that Jesus used to come back and tell you that death has been defeated. So it's not the gruesomeness of the crucifixion. It's not the resurrection that saves you. It's the substitutionary atonement that takes place. It's the picture of the Old Testament where God is preparing his people for sin's cost. Separation. From God. No fellowship with God. Rejection from God. When Jesus was on the cross, it climaxes with the passage we're just about to read, where Jesus says, Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the climax. That moment when all the sins of the world were on him. And God turned his back on his only son. 
and experienced something he's trying to save you from. That God would turn his back on us and reject us and say those words it's as if I never knew you. Jesus didn't just feel this. This is not just the writer's way of, of putting feelings into something that sounds poetic and profound. It's exactly what happened. He didn't feel forsaken. He was forsaken. Now what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? It was all about this experience. God the Father can have no fellowship with sin. Rebellion. He can only have fellowship with those who are righteous. Jesus became the sin of the world. And he gave us his righteousness. So that we could have a relationship with God the Father. Thousands of people had been crucified by this method. You know, there's always been this question in my mind. I, that's the way my mind works. Is why? Why crucifixion? Why not stoning? Why not hanging by the neck until dead? Why, why hanging on a cross? Well, Pilate was trying to silence the crowd. He really wanted this insurrection that was always a threat in Jerusalem, that it would be displayed and be put in the face of the common people. This is somebody that they had raised and praised and said, this is, this is going to be our king. And so he wanted to put Jesus on the cross to humiliate him and to humiliate the people that followed him. The Pharisees, why did they want to have Jesus crucified and they offered him up for that reason? Because Jesus was a troublemaker. The entire temple system was built on a sacrifice that had to be purchased and a temple tax. And here he is coming along and he's not obeying the rules that they have and he's He's focusing his ministry on the disenfranchised, the poor, and even Gentiles. Gentiles didn't pay a temple tax. The poor certainly didn't pay a tax. And so it was disruptive. And so they said, we'll participate in this. The soldiers that were present at the crucifixion, they were just doing a job. The day's assignment on the work order said, go take this insurrectionist and hang him. It was nothing personal to them. And so what is said on the cross, this is the audience that hears it. The Romans, the Pharisees, and a few gathered there at the cross. So what he's saying from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? was for an intended audience. It was for a proclamation. 
mission accomplished. Let's read it. In Matthew, the 27th chapter, verse 37, And they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, another on the left, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple, build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have time, if he have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's Matthew's version. Matthew's writing to Jews. He, he wants them to understand something happened here. They're more familiar with sacrifices, the Passover, the Day of Atonement. They're familiar more familiar than we are. We're Baptists. And so it just goes right past and over our heads. And so somebody in the exposition of Scripture needs to say, hey, let me tell you what's going on here in the background. Jesus was not quoting poetry. He was proclaiming a divine transaction of atonement. The words from the cross are scattered all over the Old Testament. Jesus comes. Remember the Bible says that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament? He's, he's busy taking these things that they had done in the Old Testament in sort of a mindless, obedient way, a, a matter of culture and tradition, that they were, were firmly fixed in their mind. Jesus comes along and explains it. Not only does he explain it, he demonstrates it. Now, in the book of the, uh, the New Testament and the books to follow, he's making application. What is our salvation? What did Jesus accomplish? Well, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you remember, didn't want to go through that. It would be wrong, it would be too shallow to simply say he didn't want to be beaten. Uh, it would be shallow and insignificant if you said he didn't want to die. Who wants to die? He'd been telling his disciples for some time, we go up to Jerusalem. The time is near that I should be raised up and be persecuted and be crucified. I'll raise him the third day. So he knew there was nothing final about it. What's he agonizing over? 
The Bible tells us he prayed every day. He separated himself from prayer. In fact, the night before, he's spending all this time with the Father, and he's praying a simple prayer. Father, if it's possible, this cup pass from me. What cup? Ah, uh, there again. We miss it because we're Baptists. We don't understand what cup. Well, they just celebrated the Passover. And it was the night in which the wine cup was filled up five different times during the evening. And they all symbolized something. It was the fifth cup that was presented during the communion meal at, in the upper room where Jesus met with his disciples. It's called the cup of wrath. That's what it's called. And as you remember, when Jesus introduced that fifth cup, which they all were expecting, it was their way of saying, this is the conclusion of the night. On this fifth cup of wine, Jesus says, I present to you the cup of the new covenant. Right then they should have said, that's the cup of wrath. That's when God judges all the enemies of Israel. No, he says, I'm presenting to you the cup of the new covenant. Yet, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he praying? Father, I don't want to experience what it takes for this to happen. It's not physical pain he's worried about. It's not fright. It's not fear. It's this experience of feeling totally abandoned by God. Where God would turn his back. And the scene of this is it's dark. It says it was dark all the way through the land in the middle of the day. Jesus, on that moment, became the most obscene creature on earth. For us. And it was a transaction. I told you we were going to go look at another passage. Go with me to Psalm the 22nd chapter. I want you to see what Jesus is demonstrating, explaining, and applying. Here it is. Written a long time before Jesus stepped down to the world here below. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 22. Are you there? Say amen. All right, here we are. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. In the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Does it sound familiar? 
It is directly prophetic to what happened. It was the plan. Everybody, all inclusive, had the reasons why they rejected Jesus. But Jesus was on the cross loving them. What's the other famous thing that Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. They're gambling for his robe at the foot of the cross. They're cursing him. Even the thief on the cross that gets saved, it says he was participating. Something happened. His eyes were open to who Jesus was. Jesus was not quoting poetry. He was proclaiming a divine transaction of atonement. Jesus was not only cursed, but he became a curse. If you look at Galatians, the third chapter, verse 13, if you're taking notes, just write down the address. Galatians, third chapter, verse 13, as we move on. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs where? On a tree. Isn't that amazing? It was said a long time ago that there was a transaction. Something needed to happen to save men. Men would not seek it on their own. They were incapable on their own. They couldn't keep the law. So Jesus had to do something for them. It all goes back. Here's another passage. If you're really interested in this. Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. In Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter, there's a covenant with Israel. It was announced that there were blessings and cursings. If you're obedient, I bless you. If you are disobedient and unfaithful to me, I curse you. And that was a promise. Blessings and cursings. We live through the Old Testament. That's the plan. Whenever God's leader is obedient, God blesses Israel. Whenever they're disobedient, God curses Israel. It's, it's called the retribution principle. That's what it's called in theology. Is the idea if I do good, God has to bless me. If I do bad, he has to curse me. That moment that Jesus is on the cross, everybody deserved to be what? Cursed. rebellious Jesus became the lamb of sacrifice he became the scapegoat what the substitution oh let me tell you about that Jews knew about this we need to be reminded of it. Here's the way that the sacrificial system happened. You're going to have a aha moment. Somebody will hear. In Bethlehem, they raised sheep. 
that were taken to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. Where did I say? Bethlehem. Where did Jesus come from? Bethlehem. These sheep were raised, their pedigrees were protected, they were examined for flaws, imperfections. They would call from that group the 12 perfect ones, if you will, who were led in through the sheep gate in Jerusalem. That's why it was called that. The sheep were led in, and they were led into the temple grounds. And the priest during the week of Passover would spend time looking at these 12 sheep. Because we were looking for perfection. They would choose one sheep who would be the scapegoat. And at the right moment, this hand-selected perfect sheep was brought to the priest. He would lay his hands on the sheep and announce the sins of the nation. The sins that have been confessed to me are now on this sheep. Guess what happens then? They take that sheep and they lead him out of Jerusalem beyond the gate to a hillside and they slit its throat. That was the sacrificial system. Jesus came in to Jerusalem. Guess what gate? The sheep gate. How long was he there? A week. How was he examined? By the priests and the Pharisees. And at this moment, they led him out of the town to be crucified. He was a scapegoat. Your sins were on his head. He died for you so you did not have to be let out of the city. Because in Deuteronomy the 28th chapter, it's firm. Obedient blessings, cursings, separation. He became your scapegoat. God had to turn his back on Jesus. He has no fellowship. And what Jesus experienced at that moment was total abandonment. Rejection. Feeling of filth. Loneliness. He was blessed. He became a curse so you could receive a blessing. Numbers, the sixth chapter, verses 24 through 26. It is the blessing often announced at the conclusion of a worship service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. How is that possible? Because of what Jesus 
did on the cross. But at that moment, God turned out the lights on his son. He experienced the fullness of separation. He drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Salvation is not based on how gory the crucifixion was. It's not even based on the resurrection. It's based on that act of the substitutionary atonement. Like all the miracles of the Bible, the resurrection is a sign that the mission had been accomplished. You know what the first thing Jesus said was when he came to his disciples afterwards? Fear not. Translation, I'm not mad. It had to happen. And I did it for you. The first thing that he needs to accomplish is he needs to get Peter and pull Peter aside and say, I know you betrayed me, but also you remember what I told you. I prayed that when you were restored, notice when I took care of it on the cross, that you would tell others what I did for you. I love you, Peter. Now, love my sheep. It's called substitutionary atonement. And just like Roger said during the Sunday school lesson this morning, the only problem we have we have a hard time seeing ourselves as sinners. We see holiness as how my life compares to somebody who's on the front page of the local newspaper who killed or robbed. We, 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 we compare ourselves to people that don't go to church on any given Sunday. We're in the house of the Lord. No, we come here because we are aware of what Jesus did for us. Now, what we're going to do right now, a little bit out of order from what some of you might have been expecting, we're going to take of communion together right here at this moment. And so I'm going to ask the deacons that were going to participate in that that you come forward.